Now turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And as you're turning there, if you can believe it, friends, we were together for the first time one year ago on this Lord's Day, that third Sunday in December of 2021. I'd been invited to fill the pulpit while Dr. Wilborn was supposed to be in Peru, but it turned out that that trip was canceled. But nevertheless, you all hosted us, and I was glad to fill the pulpit on that Lord's Day. And from that first visit was the beginning of a beautiful friendship, yes? Well, on that, I say that because on that last Lord's Day last year, uh, we looked, uh, on that Lord's Day last year, we looked at two songs of the Incarnation. We looked at the song of the angels, the Gloria, glory to God in the highest, and we looked at Mary's song, the Magnificat. And so I thought I might continue in that vein tonight, looking at another song of the Incarnation, this time looking at the song often called the Benedictus, Zechariah's prophecy. And you know, this is, this is often the pattern of Scripture. When there is a great moment in redemptive history, it is often accompanied by singing. And many times those songs are recorded in Scripture. God acts, God delivers, and his people respond in songs of praise and adoration. Think about it. In Exodus, God delivers Israel out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, destroying Pharaoh's army. And remember Exodus 15? The song of Moses and the song of Miriam. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Or further on, God gives Hannah a son, Samuel. 1 Samuel 2, the song of Hannah. My heart exults in the Lord. Fast forward to the Davidic covenant. A man of David's David's line shall forever be on the throne of Israel. And of course, we are given a panoply of psalms, all kinds of songs to the covenant-keeping God. Fast forward again to the book of Revelation. There we're thinking about the second coming of Christ. And in Revelation 5, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll. Or in Revelation 15, They sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. All of that to say that this is a biblical theological pattern that follows us through Scripture. That God acts redemptively. And his people respond in song. We can see that here at this juncture of redemptive history. Surrounding the conception and the birth of our Lord Jesus, the incarnation, Scripture records for us several songs of praise and response from his people. Tonight, we see it from the lips of Zechariah. And while Scripture, as we'll read it in just a moment, does not say that Zechariah sang per se, it states that he said, you'll notice that it follows a structure And a a Hebrew pattern that is very much imitative of the Psalms. And so it is song-like and lyrical in its own right. Very much like Mary's Magnificat. Uh, For that matter, by the way, it was not uncommon for Old Testament prophecies to be offered in a song form. And Zechariah is functioning in the style of one of the last Old Testament prophets in this instance. So, with all that for introduction, let's look to God's word. We'll read it, and then we'll ask for his help and blessing. Let's look to Luke chapter 1. I'll read verses 67 through 79 tonight. This is God's holy word. Hear it. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? O Lord, please, we ask, grant us the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Bless the reading and especially the preaching of the word such that Christ would communicate his benefits and grace to us. Help us to understand your word this night. And do it, we pray, for your glory and our everlasting good and our everlasting joy in you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, as we turn to this familiar narrative, let's remind ourselves just a wee bit about the context. Right? Mary, the mother of Jesus, she has traveled to Judea to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, for a time. And when Mary and Elizabeth reunite, they are full of joy. And Mary bursts into song. The Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. Mary, you know, is very much aware of the song of Hannah. And of course, as she's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she is building on that song and and bringing it to a crescendo and fulfillment in some ways. But remember, during this happy family get-together, this happy family reunion, old Zechariah cannot speak. Remember why? Luke 1, up at verse 18. The angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth would be supernaturally pregnant with a son who would be called John. Now, Zechariah receives that message with apparently more than mere confusion, but actually disbelief. This this seems to be the case based on the rebuke, the strong rebuke of the angel. Now, I'm thinking he's disbelieving and and, then... Gabriel overreacts with the kind of rebuke that he gives him. If we, lest we think this seems an overreaction on Gabriel's part, do remember who Zechariah is. This is not some average Jewish commoner. This is not just some average everyday, everyday individual. This is a man of God. Zechariah is a priest, recall. He's, in this scene, actually, he's serving God in the temple uh, when he meets, when Gabriel meets him. He's in the midst of his regular duties and his liturgical rounds. This man knows his Old Testament. He knows the story of barren Abram and Sarah and that miraculous pregnancy. He knows from the Samuel narratives. He knows of the closed womb of Hannah and how the Lord gave her and Elkanah a son, Samuel. Had he been mindful of the sweep of his Old Testament scriptures, a miraculous pregnancy is not unprecedented in God's gracious dealings with his people. But but as Zechariah listens to what the angel Gabriel is saying to him, he exhibits unbelief. Perhaps perhaps something that is out of character with the general godliness and the pattern of his life, but it is unbelief just the same. And as an aside, I really appreciated what uh, a point that more than one commentator drew out here, that in that rebuke, the 
Zechariah receives from the angel, is there perhaps a lesson in that for all of us? That is, to be on guard against the unbelief in our own heart. Or at the very least, to be on guard against the inability to hear and receive God's word when it hits us straight in the face. If it can happen to godly Zechariah, could it not happen to me or to you? Vigilance is wise. And if you look down at verse 662 here in Luke 1, everyone's, everyone's gesturing at him, wondering what this now-born baby should be called. They're, they're, they're signing at him, Scripture says. He can't speak. Zechariah's mute. It seems he cannot hear either. Remember the Lord's rebuke to Abraham way back in Genesis 18, verses 13 and 14? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The angel Gabriel, in his own way, seems to be invoking his own version of that rebuke here. Zechariah, you doubter, is anything too hard for the Lord? And now, for the next nine to ten months, as the baby is gestating in the womb of Elizabeth, Old Zechariah is plunged into silence. Silence. And the song that bursts from his lips, which we are about to study, is something which has been stewing, bubbling, percolating in his heart for some nine months now. Do notice that it takes nine, maybe ten months of silence, divinely imposed silence, for Zechariah to get it through his head. As one commentator pointed out, Is there a lesson here? Is there a warning here for us that in the ceaseless cacophony of noise in our lives and routines, the buzz and the din ringing in our ears, all the competing voices and messages in our world and lives increasingly inhibiting our ability, is it so that the ceaseless cacophony is increasingly inhibiting our ability to hear the voice of God as it comes to us in Holy Scripture? The psalmist gets it. In the great Psalm 46, remember it? Mountains are tottering and the sea is foaming and nations are raging, wars and calamities. And in the midst of that, God cries out, Silence! Be still! And know that I am God, the Lord says. Silence. Sometimes that's what it takes for us to be reckoned, for us to reckon with the Lord's word as it comes to us straight in the face. Be on guard, brothers and sisters, lest that cacophony in our own lives is drowning out the word of God and competing voices are drowning out the word of God. May it ever be that we have tender and open hearts and ears and minds to receive it gladly and receptively. Well, in any event, Elizabeth gives birth to a healthy baby boy. And we see in verse 61 that the custom was that a son should be named for his father, or at the very least a male family member. That's the custom. But Elizabeth insists, no, the boy's name will be John. So they turn to Zechariah. Well, what does dad have to say? He's, he's a priest. He's an Old Testament scholar. He knows the custom. So that he can't speak quite yet. So they, they bring him a writing tablet. And he writes down, his name is John, as Gabriel had told him way back in verse 13. And at that point, Luke says, verse 64, Luke says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue is loosed and he spoke blessing to God. Zechariah submits to God. He's learned what he ought in those nine to ten months of silence. And God thus opens his mouth and grants him the ability to speak again. And what's his first word? 
Good grief, that was miserable. Glad that's over. That's probably what I'd say. I'm less godly than Zechariah. No, that's not what he says. No, notice. It's a word of praise. He bursts into doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. You see, God has brought Zechariah from unbelief to adoring trust. And from Zechariah's song prophecy, there's three overarching themes for us to see. Uh, It's funny, almost every commentary that I consulted outlined it uh, nearly uh, the exact same way, so I thought we would just trace those wise steps as well. Zechariah sings of God's plan, he sings of God's provision, and he sings of God's person. God's plan, God's provision, and God's person. So let's think along those three lines as we study the text tonight. First of all, God's plan. This is a theme that we see also in Mary's song in the Magnificat as well, but it's especially prominent in Zechariah's song here, that in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, that's now in the womb of the Virgin Mary, in this, God was keeping his word. We're being reminded, Zechariah is saying, that in his matchless sovereignty, God upheld and governed all his creatures and all their actions, if I could borrow the language of our catechism, so that the promise... The ancient covenant made made so long ago to childless Abram that one from Abram's seed would come and in Abram all the families of the earth should be blessed. That God had orchestrated all things in space and time and eternity so that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, a daughter of Eve, that promised seed who would bruise the serpent's head, as we thought about even this morning, as Dr. Wilborn preached on the Proto-Evangelium. Finally, you see, finally, it's happening. One of David's own line, the, the consolation of Israel, for which godly Simeon was looking, for which so many of the faithful in Israel were, were longing, finally, 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 he's coming. He's already on his way. Look at verse 69. That ancient promise to David way back, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, that a son of David would reign from David's throne forever. He will be born, Zechariah says, in the house of David. This child is David's heir. It will happen, verse 70, just as the prophets from of old had said. Oh, do you see it? Almost, almost breathless, we can imagine Zechariah and the, the excitement. It's, it's Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 49, the, the royal scepter of Judah, 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. It's, it's happening, it's happening, it's coming right before our eyes. Or look down at verses 72 and 73. God was acting to show the mercy promised to the fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. That ancient covenant promise. A descendant, a descendant of once childless Abraham is now swimming in the embryonic fluids within the womb of the Virgin Mary. Of course he is. Of course. It's so like you, Lord. It's so like you, Lord. Or look at verse 76. Here, Zechariah speaks of his own son, John, the the role that he will play in all this glorious wonder that's playing out before their eyes. 
John, we are told, will grow to be the, the final and the crescendo, if you like, of the Old Testament prophets. He will immediately precede the coming of the Lord and prepare Israel for his arrival, prepare Israel for his public ministry. We saw that there at the end of our text in verse 80. He was in the wilderness until the day of his, his public appearance to Israel. That John's, John's public appearance, awaiting, of course, the public appearance of the Lord Jesus as he would meet him there at the River Jordan in due time. If you wanted to summarize the theology of the Old Testament and the theology of the New Testament in four words, you you could do it like this. There's maybe more we could flesh out, but you could do a lot worse. If you wanted to summarize the theology of the Old and New Testaments, you could do it in about these four words. Promises made, promises kept. Promises made, promises kept. Old Testament, promises made. New Testament, promises kept. And Zechariah is signaling that we're beginning the time of transition. Out of the era of promises made, Old Covenant, now into the era of promises kept, promises fulfilled. John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, if you like, he's the one who will immediately precede Jesus Christ, the one in whom the promises shall ultimately be kept at last. Zechariah is a wonderful covenant theologian. He gets it. He gets it. I love how... I love how Dr. Wilborn mentioned that scarlet thread that runs through the text of Holy Scripture from front end to back end. It's another one of those happy providences of God. We didn't plan this. We didn't have a huddle back in the study saying, you make sure you bring out this theme and I'll make sure I bring out this theme as well. You do morning, I'll do evening, we'll double team them. No, we didn't do that. But in God's happy providence, we're both emphasizing these things today. You can take any strand of God's covenant promises and you can trace it through the whole of Scripture. It'll take you from the promises of God as they, as they come from the Lord's own mouth or as they come from the mouth of his spokesmen, his prophets. And it will lead you here to the child in the manger and to the man on the cross and to the empty tomb and ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ risen and reigning on his throne. There's all kinds of things, there's all kinds of things that we learn uh, in seminary. Uh, many of which are promptly forgotten, sadly. But there's a, there's, a moment, there's a moment I recall with vivid, vivid imagery. I have a vivid memory of a professor, and he said, Turn to John 5.39, and Jesus confounds the religious authorities, and he gives us essentially a, a thesis of all the Bible. Remember what Jesus says there? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, namely the scriptures, it is they that bear witness about me. He said, if you get nothing else out of this semester, get this. The scriptures speak centrally, fundamentally, overarchingly about Christ. He is the golden thread or the scarlet thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. You see, I say that, brothers and sisters, because it is possible, it's possible to read and study and spend time in the scriptures, even daily, and yet to miss their grand point, isn't it? You see, the scriptures are meant to bring us to Christ. The whole Bible, right? not just these nativity stories, but the whole of history of God's saving acts and dealings with his people, the whole of it is ultimately, in the end, about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him, friends? Boys and girls, do you know him? Right? Not just stories in the Bible, not just stories from the Bible about Noah's Ark and Daniel's in the, Daniel in the lion's den, as useful as those are, of course. We don't mean to denigrate that. But do you know, ultimately, 
that all those scriptures, all those stories that your moms and dads and your grandparents and your Sunday school teachers and your catechism class teachers, all those stories that they're teaching you, boys and girls, are meant to drive us to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the, to the horn of salvation there in verse 69, the horn of salvation as Zechariah calls him here. Yes, it's true, folks can sometimes take things to excess and they'll, they'll you know, Different theologians or different preachers, they'll try to find Jesus under every rock and every nook and cranny and every verse and, and force him into every textual nook and cranny in Scripture. But in the grand arc, the grand trajectory of the, of the thrust of Holy Scripture, all the strands, all the threads from the fringes of the fabric of all God's purposes and promises, they gravitate toward and they coalesce and fulfill and they terminate on him He is the one that we need. He is the one of whom Scripture speaks. He is the one of whom Zechariah sings. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you love him, friends? So that's the first thing. Zechariah teaches us about God's plan, to whom it was pointing, the grand overarching arc and thrust and trajectory to whom it was pointing, God's plan. But then secondly, he teaches us about God's provision. God's provision. What is God up to in the sending of Jesus Christ? Well, we could spend days exegeting and extrapolating meaning from every phrase, every clause of Zechariah's prophecy, from Zechariah's song here, but I like what one commentary did in saying that we can summarize Zechariah's song under four large banners, and they should be there for you in the bulletin insert outline. Redemption, renewal, illumination, and peace. Redemption, renewal, illumination, and peace. These are the four main themes that Zechariah sings about in his prophecy here. Think first about redemption. See verse 68? God has visited and redeemed his people, Israel. Redemption, of course, involves a price being paid, doesn't it? In order to secure a release, to secure a freedom. And if you look at verses 71 and then 74, we see that for Zechariah, the the basic paradigm by which he understands this concept of redemption is the Exodus. Indeed, this is the basic paradigm for all the Old Testament, or at least it's the major paradigm for sure. When God's Old Testament people think of salvation, when they think of redemption, when they think of rescue, the first thing that's going to pop into their minds is Red Sea, plagues, deliverance from Egypt, rescue out of bondage in Egypt. When we were released from oppression and physical slavery and bondage, they would think about that first Passover and the blood on the lintels and the doorposts. But when we come down to verse 77, we discover that ultimately the redemption that God brings and ultimately the redemption that Scripture is driving toward, God's people toward, is not merely freedom from captivity or slavish political oppression, but rather liberty from the slavery and guilt of sin, the forgiveness of our sins. That's what Zechariah says God comes to bring, and that's what his newborn son John will one day preach, repentance from sins, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John will preach on Jesus, his cousin, the Messiah, who will provide redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that's one major theme that comes out in Zechariah's song prophecy. But there's also renewal. See verse 74? To what are we redeemed? To what? That's always the question. To what or, or for what purpose 
Or what end are we redeemed? Why are we forgiven? As glorious and wondrous as forgiveness is, why are we forgiven? Well, we are redeemed for holiness. Verse 74, we are saved that we, Zechariah says, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Isn't that the way it always is with the salvation that God provides? Christ comes not only to deliver us from the penalty of sin, the guilt, the, the wrath that we deserve, but he also comes to deliver us from its power, from its, from its grip on our lives. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the captive free. Or rock of ages, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. This is what Christ always does. Not only legal righteousness, not only that legal righteous standing before God that we thought about a few weeks ago in justification, yes, but also more than that, as if that weren't enough, more than that, working in us more and more intrinsic righteousness, sanctifying us, holifying us, growing us in holiness, making us like himself in holiness, that we might serve God, that we might worship him. It's the same word in Hebrew, by the way, to worship and serve to worship him, to serve him all our days in godliness. Oh, he renews us and he restores us and he remakes us. That's what Christ has come to do. So there's redemption and there's renewal that Zechariah sings about, but then in verses 78 and 79, there's illumination and peace. You see it there? Because, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us, from on high. That's what's happening in the coming of Jesus Christ. He dawns upon us, verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is what we are by nature, apart from Christ, aren't we, friends? We are in darkness. We are in under the shadow of death. You see that lovely allusion to Psalm 23 from Zechariah the priest? Zechariah is bursting with good news. He's bursting with it. The the sun has risen. O come, thou day spring from on high. We sing that in O come, O come, Emmanuel. But that's actually how the old King James Version translates Zechariah's words here in verse 78. The day spring from on high hath visited us. And Jesus will later on say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Illumination. It's not just a nice word for inspiring thoughts, but it means light out of darkness. It means life instead of death. Liberation and freedom and blessedness in the light of life, who is Jesus Christ. Illumination. But also the fourth major theme there, peace. Peace. A result of having a light shine in front of us is that we can see. As you're hiking through the woods, those of you who enjoy it, hiking through the woods, maybe you don't enjoy hiking in the pitch black, but you can imagine having a light in front of you is no small thing. You no longer have to stumble. So it is in life, so it is spiritually. We no longer stumble when there's a light shining upon our steps. He guides our feet, Zechariah says, into the way of peace. The the, the way of shalom, the way of wholeness, the way of rest, the way of fullness, whatever word you like there. For our troubled hearts, 
for, for our seared and guilty consciences. For anxious minds and for troubled souls, Jesus Christ in him is peace. All right? Don't let the greeting card companies hijack that sentiment and make it trite. That's something we've talked about multiple times in our Golden Chain series of how so many times phrases and statements and sentiments are good and biblical and true, but they've been so ripped out of their context and they've been so trivialized and made saccharine that they sort of lose a potency for us. Don't let the, don't let the greeting card companies hijack that phrase and ruin its significance for you, friends. It is true. It is biblical. It is good. In Jesus Christ, sinners can have peace. Peace with God, peace with their fellow man. In him, Christ is our peace. Namely, he is the prince of peace. So redemption, Zechariah sings about. Renewal, illumination, and peace. In this compact lyric, Zechariah, you see, he supplies with a, with a whole theological compendium. This is why Jesus Christ came. His people need redemption. They stand guilty before a holy God, and he liberates captive sinners. And then more than that, he renews them. He restores their nature so that they are more and more dead to sin and alive to righteousness, more holy, more Christ-like. He's renewing you. He's renewing you, believer in Jesus. We live in darkness, and so the light of the world comes. He penetrates and pierces, and he shatters and scatters our spiritual darkness. And to all those with troubled consciences and burdened hearts, the Prince of Peace speaks a word of peace, that there is now, therefore, Now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See the provision. A comprehensive salvation from first to last. See the provision that God supplies through his eternal son. So God's plan, God's provision, and then thirdly and briefly, let's think about his person. His person. In connection to our previous point, God makes provision for his people's deepest and most desperate needs. Yes? How? He does it through a person. Deliverance and restoration and peace are coming. God's going to bring it to his people. How? Verse 68. We see the Lord God of Israel has visited his people and redeemed them. And verse 76. John, Zechariah's son, we are told, will be the prophet of the Most High. He will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. The one before whom Zechariah will go to prepare his ways is the Lord God of Israel. But as you read on in your New Testament and you read on in the Gospels, John's prophetic ministry is a little bit different. Right? Other Old Testament prophets, they announce God's message and they announce God's will and God acts. He, he acts from his throne on high, his throne in heaven. A little different now though. With John the Baptist, he goes, he announces God's ways, he's paving the way. Not, not just from, a, from an abstracted power from an on high that's being sent down from the throne room of heaven and, and enacted upon earth, but he's actually preluding a specific person, a specific man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The glory of the Christian gospel is that God himself comes to keep his word in the man, Jesus Christ. God himself, Emmanuel, God with us, steps into history God himself comes, and and the provision that he makes is not just a series of abstract blessings. It is to give us himself, his very self, in Jesus Christ. This is much the same thing that we've been emphasizing in our Golden Chain series. It's not just that you get a series of abstract blessings, justification and adoption and sanctification, 
but you get them in union with Jesus Christ. No blessing that you enjoy do you get. None is experienced apart from him. In the gospel, you get Christ and all his benefits. Justification, adoption, sanctification, it's all yours through Jesus Christ. In the gospel, you get not just benefits and perks. You get God himself. He is yours and you are his. Our chief end is to glorify and enjoy his benefits forever? No, to enjoy him forever. Zechariah and later his son John the Baptist are telling us that God meets his people's need. He provides through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. Is, is, is that not the mind-boggling wonder of the incarnation? That he enters and takes on our humanity and he, he grows from zygote to baby to child to teenager to man, knowing the full array of human suffering and sorrow. And he bleeds and dies and rises and reigns as the God-man, Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God come near. When God makes provision for his people, as one man said, he doesn't do it from a distance. He comes all the way down to us, close quote. Our great high priest is sympathetic because he knows our frame. And he's able to sympathize us, with us in our weaknesses. And it is he to whom we may pour out our heart and unburden ourselves. So, the question that remains is, once again, is he yours and are you his? Jesus Christ is the pardon and peace that you need, people of God. You don't need peace in the abstract. You need him. Will you cling to him by faith? Boys and girls, do you trust him? Zechariah says he is the answer. In him is the answer. This is the fulfillment of God's wondrous saving plan for the ages. Oh, may we all know the saving joy and gladness that Zechariah expresses here. Bless God for his word to us tonight. Would you pray with me? Oh, truly, Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight because you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray that you would seal these things to our hearts and to our understanding, that you'd work your truth within us for our everlasting joy and good and for your everlasting glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.